ask if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word from which Pastor Wayne's going to share and speak of during his sermon this morning. It comes from John chapter 19, the verses are 17 through 30. It reads this way, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two with him and there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered them, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to seize whose it shall be. This was to this was to this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood, stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as Pastor Wayne comes just now to share and speak to us from your word, we just ask that you would open our minds, our hearts, our ears, and our eyes to see clearly your word. I ask that you use Pastor Wayne in a mighty way this morning so that these passages, these words that we many are familiar with, but they might become even more real and alive in our lives, in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have seen to this point, Christ has been betrayed by Judas. He's been disappointed by his disciples as they repeatedly slept while he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has been illegally apprehended by the Roman guards in the middle of the night. He's been ridiculed by Annas, the, the godfather of Israel. He's been falsely accused before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin twice. He has been formally charged with blasphemy for telling the truth, was sent to Pilate for execution, then over to Herod Antipas, who mocks the very idea that he could be any kind of earthly king, before sending him back to Pilate, who declares he is not guilty, not guilty of violating any law, and he is no threat to Caesar. But the religious establishment has been planning this event since John 5, verse 18. So they have convinced the people 
you must demand that Pilate, when he tries to release Christ, no, 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 you call for a violent, dangerous, insurrectionist, and murderer Barabbas to be released. And you had better not release Christ, though, or you're no friend of Caesar. In his attempt to appease them, Pilate has Christ brutally beaten beyond recognition. He has a crown mockingly created out of these 12-inch long thorns jammed down onto his head. And to further mock Christ, he takes his Roman robe and throws it around his body. All the while, the sinners that Christ came to redeem are callously crying, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Notice John simply says, verse 16, Pilate delivered Christ over to be crucified. He doesn't repeat a lot of the details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have provided, such as Pilate washing his hands in public and proclaiming, I'm innocent of the blood of this just man. He doesn't include how the religious leaders shouted back, let, our, let his blood be on us and our children. John doesn't tell us that they stripped him, put a reed in his right hand, mockingly saluted him, hail king of the Jews. Or they spit on him, struck him in the face with their fist. He says in verse 17, Christ went out bearing his own cross, which, by the way, weighs about 300 pounds. Can you imagine being up all night, beaten beyond recognition, literally, brutally flogged? I mean, Christ is incarnate at this point. It's physically impossible to carry that much weight after having been beaten like that. So Matthew says that Simon the Cyrene steps in to help. And he's followed by a procession of women and others who are weeping at the sight of this horrific shredding of a physical body. Shredding. John simply says he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the skull in Aramaic Golgotha. We have to remember that John's purpose in recording this for us is that we would know that Christ is the incarnate God who has come to redeem us and knowing him would have eternal life. That's his purpose. And that's why maybe he doesn't repeat what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have shared with us, the, the humiliation that Christ has gone through or even the brutality of what has taken place here. But the convincing evidence that he gives us reveals the divinity of Christ and the veracity of his word. That's why you see down in verse 24, this was to fulfill scripture. Verse 28, all things were accomplished to fulfill scripture. You've got to keep in mind, none of these Roman soldiers had any idea who Christ was. Nor did they care. These guys didn't have any knowledge of the scripture. They did not know about the Lord's divine plan from eternity past. And so they are unknowingly doing exactly what the Lord foreordained, what the Lord had foretold. Most everyone in that day who was crucified would go into panic mode, knowing what is about to happen to them. And so they would prod them through the streets, whip them. 
as they put them on display for all to see like wild animals. This is what happens to you if you challenge Caesar. And yet John simply says, Christ went out. He went out. Other gospel writers say he was led away. Led away. No panic. No prodding. No struggle. Luke says that Christ followed them. As Isaiah 53 said, led like a sheep to the slaughter. You know, in both Jewish and Roman law, there were to be days between sentencing and execution. Yet in Christ's case, he goes straight from Gabbatha, Pilate's judicial seat, to Golgotha, the place of execution. As Isaiah 53 says, he's taken from judgment to death, which violates the laws of man. <laughs> Jew and Gentile, but it authenticates the veracity of God's word. He went out indicating outside the city, just as God's word said. Exodus 29, the Lord declared sin offerings are to be made outside the camp. You see it again when he gives his instructions to the Levitical tribe. Leviticus 16, day of atonement. The sin offering is to be outside the camp. So when the Jews tried to stone him earlier inside the city walls, they couldn't do it. His time had not yet come, and the Lord had predetermined that Christ's atoning death would be outside the city walls. John says he goes to the place of the skull, Golgotha. That's actually the English transliteration of the Greek word that is a transliteration of the Aramaic word for skull. Uh, when I say transliteration, that's taking a word in one language and saying it in another language without translating its meaning. It would be like taking the word baptizo in Greek. Instead of translating it immersion, you would transliterate it baptize. That's how we got the word English word baptize. Well, that's kind of what is done here. If you're going to translate this in Latin, translated, it's going to be Calvary. Matthew adds that they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. Myrrh was a rosin that comes from a tree often used to put on bodies when you are going to entomb them in order to counteract the decaying process with a sweet aroma. But you could also put it in a drink and make it a sedative. So some men, most men, they're so violent knowing what is about to take place when, they, when the Romans are going to put them to death that the Romans would use wine mixed with myrrh to sedate them. Now, when they try to do this with Christ, they unknowingly authenticate the scriptures once again. Psalm 69, they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst vinegar to drink. Yet Christ refuses to take this. Why? You ever thought about it? Why does he refuse to take this? It's not because he enjoys pain, not at all. It's just that nobody's going to be able to say down through the centuries that, that the sacrificial act of atonement and his death was somehow or another mitigated or accomplished because he was sedated. No, that's not true. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each, either side, and Jesus between them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this. As again, Isaiah 53 said that he would be numbered with, with criminals. Matthew and Mark tell us these guys were guerrilla fighters. They're, they're like Barabbas. Luke reports uh, one of them repents and confesses that, that Christ is Lord and is taken to paradise with him. 
If you want to make a note in the margins of this, this text, this is also the point at which Christ offers up the prayer, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's Luke 23, 34. Now they're doing what the rebellious hearts want to do. They're doing what they want to do. They have no idea the significance of the one they crucify, which, by the way, fulfills another prophecy. He, he was not thrown down in stone the way the Jews tried to kill him. As a matter of fact, he said back in John 3, did he not? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the bronze serpent, the Nehushtan, as he lifted that serpent up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, that's his favorite expression for his incarnate presence, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's why John 8, he said, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know I am. I am. John 12, when I am is lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. All men from every tongue, tribe, and nation on earth. The next verse, he said this to indicate the kind of death that he would die. When Christ stretches out his arms and they nail his hands to that crossbar before lifting him up to, to fasten it onto this plank, this vertical post to which they would nail his feet, Oftentimes on that post, they would put a, a small ledge enabling the crucified to kind of push up. And, and instead of hanging down like this, they'd be able to push up and allow the, the breathing to occur. And they're not doing this to relieve pain. Oh, no. They do this in order to prolong the agony. And so when it came time for them to die, they would come along and they would break their legs and they would not be able to push up any longer. It would eventually experience asphyxiation. Psalm 22, when David prays in anguish, the Lord uses it to describe for us crucifixion hundreds of years before the Romans had perfected it as a means of execution. And he writes, they pierced my hands and my feet. They divided my garments for my clothes. They cast lots. Look down at verses 23 and 24. They had no idea what they were doing but they were authenticating the divine authorship of God's word. The Lord is using this to prove that Christ is the one that the Lord foretold would accomplish our redemption. One scholar said he's counted over 300, 300 prophecies that are given over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years are all fulfilled in Christ's life alone. Many of those Old Testament prophecies are seen here at the cross, including later when they, they come to break the legs of the crucified, Christ has already voluntarily separated his spirit from his body. And so they don't break his legs. Once again, authenticating the veracity of scripture, none of his bones shall be broken, just as with the Passover lamb. And fulfilling what he said in John 10, no one takes my life, no one. I lay it down of my own accord. I'm going to die for you of my own accord. No one's going to do that. I have the authority to die, and I have the authority to take my life up again. So in verse 19, it says that Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it above the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That was common practice in that day, to, to write what the crime was that the crucified had, had committed. And so Pilate 
who has repeatedly said, I find no fault in this man. I wash my hands of, this, of his blood because he is innocent. The only reason that he is being crucified is because I am being blackmailed. And so on several occasions where these Jewish authorities have been enraged by Pilate and have engaged in these violent clashes with him, they have told him one more time, one more time, and we are going to riot and see to it that your job, your future, and your life is going to be on the line. Caesar will hear about this if you release this guy who says that he is a king. You are no friend of Caesar. Pilate's so infuriated by their demands that he puts this sign above the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. You claim he's a king. He's no threat to Caesar. So on that superscript above his head, we're going to put Jesus of Nazareth, an insignificant little town in the middle of nowhere up in Galilee. As Nathaniel said, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. It's Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews. Pilate does this to humiliate those who are humiliating him because they're blackmailing him. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. The chief priest understood what Pilate was doing. That's why they protest. And Pilate says, look, you're forcing my hand with this ridiculous claim. Many of your own people have seen the miracles that he has done. They have heard his teachings. You are the one who is threatened by him. And so what I have written, I have written. Might want to make another note right here. That when the Magi from Persia come to Jerusalem at the time of the incarnate arrival of Christ, they ask, where is he born king of the Jews? When it comes time for Christ to fulfill all that was written in the Old Testament and he returns to Jerusalem, the streets are lined with people who will shout, blessed is he who comes king of the Jews. At the time of his death, that is the title that is put, that is affixed above the cross for all to see. As they lifted him up on one of the busiest streets on the most active day of the entire year, Good Friday of Passover. All these Jews, um, by historians' calculations, more than two million, many of them coming down from Galilee. Every Jew entering into the city that day through the northern gate could not avoid this, this billboard. Romans 3 says he was publicly displayed as a propitiation. I don't know if that's a new word for some of you. It's a theological term which means to satisfy the just wrath of God. It's the wrath 
that a just God's holy character demands before his grace can be extended. You know, a lot of times people are very concerned uh, uh, with, 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 you know, how can a loving God send men to hell? Do you realize the Bible has no problem with that? All men as, as rebels, as sinners, deserve the justice that they've earned. The Bible doesn't have any problem with that. The big issue is how can a holy God be gracious and still be just? And Christ answers that question. As Paul explains to the church at Corinth, he said, for our sake, he made him, talking about Christ, to be sin, treated him like he was a sinner, though he was without sin. So that in him, those that are born again in him, they are covered by his blood in the presence of a holy God, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No one can say, wait a minute, it's not right for the Lord to use you to his glory here on earth and throughout all eternity. And then be just with me. That's just not right. How can he do that without violating his holiness? Here's your answer. For the whole world to see. Those in Christ are justified. Those in Christ are justified. Before a holy God. Because he has propitiated. He has satisfied the just wrath of God for sinners. Those who choose to reject his means of redemption. Those who decide, hey, I'm going this on my own. I'm going to, I'm going to approach the Lord on the basis of my religion. I'm going to approach, the base, approach him on the basis of my good deeds. I'm going to approach him on what I think and what I believe and how I, have, how I see life and eternal life. In my autonomy, that's how I'm going to approach him. Just know this that the Lord who is holy has absolutely no choice but to be just with you. Everyone saw king of the Jews in Aramaic or Hebrew, the, the language of the religious man, that the final sacrifice has been made. They see it in Greek, the language of the philosophic man who tries to, to think his way to meaning and purpose for life. And they see it in Latin, the language of the law. This is where the religious man finds his atonement where the philosophic man finds his purpose and where the legal man finds his justice. Aramaic or, or Hebrew is for the Jew. Greek is for the culture and Latin is for those with the legal power of that day. Christ dies for those of every tongue, tribe and nation on earth. When the soldiers had crucified him, they took his garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. The execution squad consists, obviously, of four soldiers who will divide his belt, his sandals, his head covering, and his robe. Now, there's also the tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. That the tunic is this one-piece garment worn close to the body. Now, why do they not cut it up? Why do they not... Uh, why is it that they cast lots for it? Why is that? They have no idea. They have no idea. They do what they do with no idea why they are doing it. But John tells you, here's why they did it. 
is to fulfill scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Do you realize there's more than 20 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled right here within a 24-hour period at the cross that verifies the sovereignty of God, the veracity of Scripture, the deity of Christ. Matthew says the insurrectionists on each side of Christ have been mocking him. But as it gets close to noon, one of them, seeing Christ reject the wine mixed with myrrh, one of them, hearing him pray, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, One of them seeing that as people are going by and reviling him, he is not returning those ugly comments at all, but is showing mercy and compassion and grace. It says one of them, by the grace of God, remembers what he'd been taught as a child, as a Jew. The purpose of the law and the role of sacrifice. What the Old Testament scriptures taught about the coming Messiah. And so he turns to the other thief and he says, do you not fear God? I mean, what does the Bible say is the beginning of wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord who is holy. We're we're about to receive justly what we deserve. We are rebels. We deserve this. This man has done nothing wrong. I mean, he's dying for what he did not do. And by the grace of God, this thief understands what's occurring. And he says to Christ, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, when you're being crucified, there's not a lot you can do to contribute to your salvation. There's not going to be a whole lot of good deeds that this this thief is going to be able to do to to earn or to to win over the, the goodness of the Lord. This man's hope is completely in what Christ is doing. What he is doing for sinners like this guy. He understands the gospel. The fear of God is holy. The fear of God who is holy is the beginning of wisdom. So he trusts in Christ's atoning death as his only hope. John Calvin said this man is a terrific theologian. Which is not too bad for a guy who just three hours earlier was a rebel to God. But that's what divine grace does. It turns thieves into theologians and sinners into saints and rebels into the redeemed. Christ says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. And standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home, his own home. So he's telling us there are four women standing here. Probably there may have been more, but he identifies these four women standing near the cross of Christ. Mary, who was the wife of Joseph, who had been used by the Lord as the instrument for the incarnate arrival of Christ into humanity. Salome, her sister, believed to be the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John. Then there's Mary, the wife of Clopas, who will keep a vigil here at the tomb with another Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, for whom Christ cast out demons in Luke 8. The disciple Christ loved is John's favorite way of referring to himself. He never puts his name in in his own record of the Gospels. 
Can, can you imagine these five who love the Lord? They love Christ. They see him being stripped of his clothes. Brutally, brutally beaten. Beyond recognition. Flogged. Humiliated. Nailed to a tree. Lifted up with vile sinners as if he were a criminal. And members of the Sanhedrin, those to whom he had given his word, along with these pagan Roman authorities, encouraging all who passed by to mockingly ridicule him with shouts of insults. And yet Christ prays for his executioners. He shows compassion to this, this sinner who pleads for mercy. Can you imagine how difficult it must have been for them? You might want to make a note here in your margins that John does not give us the, the name of Mary, the wife of Joseph, his, his mother. Matthew and Mark, they don't even mention her. <laughs> and so I just kind of find that odd, don't you? I find it odd to think that anyone claiming to be a Christian would now take this person and elevate her to a position of co-redemptrix. That means female redeemer. You say, somebody's done that? Yes. I mean, you have to deny her own confession. She said, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I mean, she's not even mentioned in the epistles. So you say, well, how could they do that? I mean, how can Roman Catholicism claim that you have to pray through Mary, that she's the intercessor between us and Christ? How can you say that she is, she's born of a virgin? The Immaculate Conception. That she remained a virgin when Matthew gives us the names of the children that she and Joseph had after Christ's arrival. How can you contend that she never experienced sin or death? I mean, how do you do that? How do you get that from Scripture? Well, you can't. You can't unless you really distort the Scripture. You have to malign the Scripture. I, I was reading the defense of this this week. And you have to go back to Genesis 3.15 and you have to turn he into she. <laughs> he will crush the serpent's head. No, she will crush the serpent's head. It's not the one born of woman, it's the woman. And then you've got to ignore a whole lot of other scriptures and reinterpret other verses through the lenses of theology that are not even remotely orthodox. You know, while Mary was the human instrument used by the Lord to accomplish Christ's incarnate arrival, Christ never even refers to her as mother. He calls her woman. That's the same way that he addressed her at the beginning of his ministry back in, in John 2, there at the wedding feast, when she comes to him and, and, and tells him about their friend's problem here with having run out of wine, and he refers to her as, as woman. Now, that's a term of respect. I mean, he's not being disrespectful here. He, he's not being unkind in any way. It, it's just a term that recognizes that Mary is no different than any other sinner in need of redemption, that Mary is a woman. She's not a woman who wants to be a man. She is a woman who is a sinner. Mark 3, 
When Mary with her children show up during one of Christ's encounters with the scribes and the Pharisees, they say, your mother and your brothers are here. And he said, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and my sister and my mother. You understand what he's saying there? Christ exists from eternity past. Mary did not. She is not part of the Trinity. And yet we see the sympathy that Christ announces from the cross for this dear woman. He's not even going to ask her biological children to take care of her. But he's going to ask one that shares her faith in him as Christ and Lord to take care of her. That's John. Behold your mother. Take her to your home and care for her, which he does. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, he said this to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a, a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished to tell us die. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know, according to the other gospels, Christ now says, before he says to tell us die, he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. That expresses the true nature of the atonement, the anguish the anguish that Christ experiences satisfying the wrath of God for sin. And a strange thing occurs. The sun goes dark. The sun goes dark. Reminiscent of what occurred in Egypt when the judgment of God came upon Pharaoh and they were led out beneath the blood of the Passover lamb. All of the Old Testament points to this moment in history. All of it. And all of the New Testament points back to this moment in history. To tell us die, it is finished. It means from one end to the other. It's where you get telegraph, telephone, television. It means to complete a circuit. To tell us die is in the perfect tense here. So it means that it's, it's, it's not only finished now, it is finished forever. It has all been accomplished, all of it. Before his spirit separates from his incarnate flesh, Christ says, I thirst. Psalm 69 said he would be given vinegar. And you know what? Even the use of the hyssop branch to extend the sponge to his lips is significant. The hyssop branch. This is the plant prescribed in Exodus 12 for applying the blood of the Passover lamb. It's the hyssop branch that you dip into the blood of the lamb. And you put above the doorpost and the death angel will pass over those who are covered by the blood. And so these soldiers, not doing this as an act of mercy, of course, they're doing this to prolong his torment, not realizing that what's behind the reason for doing this is to authenticate scripture. And this time Christ accepts it. He accepts the vinegar. The sourness of dying for sinners. Extended to him on a hyssop branch. Just as we saw in the Old Testament in the picture the Lord gave us. And then he makes one final statement. To tell us die. It is finished. All the Lord foreordained from before the foundation of the world and the beginning of time. Is accomplished. 
Luke records that he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. You know, what Christ suffers to reconcile us with a holy God is really, I think, beyond human comprehension myself. I mean, like the criminal next to him, and we, we simply receive the gift that he has purchased at the cross. And as a result, as a result, we, we die to the old selfish person we once were. We're going to die to that. We're, we're no longer going to think the way we once thought. We're no longer going to live the way we once lived. We're no longer going to be self-centered in the way that we conduct our life. We're going to be Christ-centered. Why? Because we're new creations in Christ. We're born again to the praise and glory of God Almighty. That's why we don't vote on his word. That's why we don't distort his word. We simply obey it. As he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Why? Because that's who you are. That's who you are. You're called for a purpose and you're redeemed for God's glory. Um, is that who you are? If you have any questions about this, you can go to the connect table this morning and there'll be somebody there to help you. But I want to introduce to you before you leave uh, a family that, um, that has experienced this. I'd like for the Joe and Kelly McClary family to stand along with their five children, Madison, Ashlyn, Josh, David, and John, right here. The McClary family, uh, they live over in Richmond and they've been worshiping with us for several months now. And they have a very clear understanding of the gospel. And they are well grounded in scripture. And they have such a sweet spirit. And it's their desire to continue growing in God's word and serving him in a way that truly honors and glorifies the goodness and the grace of our Lord. I believe as more of you get to know them, your lives are going to be enriched by their humility and by their kindness. And so I'd like for you this morning to welcome the McClary family to Wellington. Our family just got better and stronger with the addition of this family. Welcome them this morning. Also, our church leaders have asked me to communicate two more special announcements to you. Over the last few months, we've been discussing how we as leaders can provide more opportunities for spiritual growth. And as you can see, we have new families who are coming every week. Uh, as we grow in numbers, we also want to be faithful in equipping the saints for the work of ministry and the building up of the body. So the first announcement has to do with the launch of what we're calling an Equip You ministry designed to provide opportunities for everyone in the church to take courses focused on deepening your understanding of God's truth. Uh, the Equip You classes will be uh, beneficial, we hope, for everyone, regardless of how long you've been a Christian. And we're hoping, we're hoping to get that launched this fall. The second announcement goes along with that, is we've heard many positive comments about Trey Meester's teaching of God's Word. Uh, I heard that in visiting with the McClary's. I heard that in visiting with the family over in Irvine. Uh, the Barbosa family. I heard that again this morning from the, the Dunn family. Uh, I'm, I'm hearing it from lots of folks. And though he's been very faithful to serve as our youth pastor these past three years, uh, he is now going to help us initiate this new ministry while we seek to trans, uh, we help him to transition into a senior pastor role at some point in the future. 
Uh, Trey wants to be a senior pastor, and we, we want to support him in that. We've had others who have come through here in that position who have wanted the same thing, and that's, that's really, it's hard on us, but it's good for them. And so we want to support that. This transition will obviously take time. So over the next few months, there will be changes. And we, we hope those changes are beneficial to, to uh, not only Trey, but beneficial to you as the church. We will can, he will continue working with our youth through May as the Equip You ministry won't launch till fall. We don't want, we, we don't really know, we don't know really the timing for Trey and Katie to enter into a preaching ministry. Uh, where his, his gifts to preach the word will be experienced by, by a congregation weekly. But we are excited that uh, we're, we're going to try to continue to benefit from his preaching and his teaching as part of this new ministry at Wellington. We hope to expand his opportunities for, for teaching. Uh, personally, I am grateful uh, for him being here to help me with preaching in this church. Uh, as he recently did when I was at a conference, and, and I'll be gone some this summer. And so I, I greatly um, hope that he's going to be here for, for a, a long time, but yet I still support uh, his, his desire to preach full-time. During this transition, we will also pursue another full-time youth pastor to build on the foundation that Trey has laid. And uh, we'll, have, we'll have Trey and others hopefully here to help him be able to do that. And during this time, two of our elders, Ty Johnson and Kevin Cooper, who have teenagers in the youth group, along with Tim Taylor, who has been a youth minister in the past, are going to be working with the teen ministry uh, this, this summer. And um, everything's going to, we're going to try to continue as normal as far as the teens go. William Brown will continue to teach at 9 a.m. in the 6 p.m. interchange where teens fellowship with one another while learning how to apply God's word to their lives. That will continue as well. So even though I've given you a very brief summary of this, a more extensive explanation of the announcement is at the uh, Connect table. And so we, we want you to, to pick up a copy of that on the way out. And we're also providing uh, that in an email online because we have so many families that are out today for spring break. But feel free to go by, get the announcement. It outlines the coming changes and how we hope to initiate this very uh, smooth and positive transition over the next few months. Now, with that said, let us stand and pray together. Lord, we thank you for redeeming us through Christ's atoning death. We do not deserve it, but we're so grateful for it. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the privilege to serve you as his body on earth. And Lord, we hope that we do that well where all who know us and who hear our teaching will certainly see how you are glorified in our life and not we ourselves. We thank you, Lord, for the, the leaders that you have provided who love you and who love this church. We thank you for the pastors you have provided who love you and who love this church. And we thank you, Lord, for young men who are faithful to the preaching of your word, for the gift that you have given them. And we thank you, Lord, for many blessings that you have rightly bestowed upon Christ and have through him richly bestowed upon us as our Savior and as our Lord. 
in whose name we pray. Amen.